Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Good to be with you guys. Good to have you here. Glad you survived the polar vortex this week. I know that like the parents with kids in school are like, we just need school to happen. We just need it to start again. We're going to survive. We're going to make it a whole week. So so it should be a great week this week for that, right? Also, if anyone was counting, T-minus two weeks till Hannah and I's cruise in the Caribbean. Just keeping you updated, posted on all the important things going on, right? Uh, maybe I'm just the only one keeping count. Anyways, okay. Um, so it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we are on the front end of a series uh, going through the book of Matthew. And, and this morning we're going to be studying a passage in Matthew that, that's uh, commonly unknown or commonly referred to as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you've been with us for a little while at River City, what you know is that a few years back we uh, studied through the Sermon on the Mount. We spent about couple of months digging just verse by verse, chunk by chunk through uh, that sermon. And so uh, this morning, our goal is not to do the deep dive on all the verses of three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, because that would be like a whole series in and of itself. And uh, so we're rather, we're going to try to take a summary overlook and try to take an overview of what, what's at the heart of the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And if after we study this morning, you want to go back and learn a little bit more about that and want to study a little bit deeper about uh, what Jesus is teaching about in the Sermon on the Mount, you can find those links and the links to all that stuff and all those sermons on our website. Just go to rivercitydbq.org. And if you click on the little sermons button at the top, it'll take you down. You can find links for Google Play and iTunes and Spotify and whatever else digital technology makes your heart happy to listen to stuff. So um, you can find all of those there. Uh, you can even find YouTube links because we started doing videos of things. So if that's your jam, go for it, okay? Um, but uh, this morning, like I said, we're just trying to do an overview of what's going on. And what I want to do this morning as we study is to help highlight what, what is at the heart of Jesus' message. What's at the heart of what Jesus is preaching about here in these three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount? You know, and I think one of the important things to understand is that this, this sermon is arguably the most famous words that Jesus has ever preached. If, if you have never opened a Bible, if you have never read the Bible at all, you have probably heard a fair amount of the words that Jesus preaches about here in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the golden rule or the phrase everyone loves, the, the idea of not judging others. All these kinds of phrases are full throughout the Sermon on the Mount. They, they characterize what, a lot of what's happening in there. But despite this being some of the most well-known and most quoted words of Jesus, most familiar, most famous words of Jesus, these are often usually the most misused and the most misunderstood words of Jesus. And so in an effort to avoid that misunderstanding and misusing of Jesus' words this morning, what I want us to do is to just give us a bit of context to get our bearings so we can understand what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, to understand how to read it and how to, how to understand it rightly. And you see, what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount is that it's the closest thing to a kind of a manifesto that Jesus ever writes or that Jesus ever says. And it's a manifesto, it's a, it's a proclamation about one thing. It's a proclamation about the kingdom of God and what that kingdom is like. And as we've seen throughout the sermon on the, throughout Matthew so far, that's the central theme of his book. The theme of the Gospel of Matthew is the, is the announcement and the proclamation and the highlighting and the coming of Jesus and of his kingdom. And so over and over and over again throughout Matthew's Gospel, we hear him heralding this coming of this king and his kingdom. We hear him heralding it as good news over and over again. It's, in a way, it's kind of like Matthew's kind of like a new parent. Many of you have had babies recently, and uh, you guys know what that's like. We may not be good at a whole lot at River City yet, but we are really good at having kids, and so we got to be good at something. Might as well start there, okay? 
And so when you have a baby, you're excited about that, right? And you announce those kinds of things. You're excited about that. You, you stick a ridiculous sign with a picture of some kind of manipulated swan in a blue or pink color on the front of your lawn, right? And you post thousands of pictures on Facebook, and you want to announce that good news. You want to announce the news that you aren't pregnant anymore. You also had a baby, but that's just kind of a side thing, right, at that point, right? It's, it's good news. You're, you're excited about that. It's good news that changes your life. And in reality, what's happening is you kind of are entering a new kingdom in which a tiny, miniature human who poops everywhere and smells terrible most of the time is now in charge, right? You have entered a new kingdom, but it's, a good, it's, it's good news. And just like the good news that you announce when you proclaim that you have a baby, we see Matthew doing the same thing over and over. He's, he's so excited. He wants us to see that the coming of this kingdom and the coming of this king is really good news. And it's the proclamation of this good news that sets the stage for Jesus' most famous sermon here in the Sermon on the Mountain. Chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, it reads this way. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And it says in verse 24, news about him spread all over Syria and large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region, they came across the Jordan and they followed him. And so the question that we're left with as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, the the stage that's set, is just simply this. Why is this kingdom good news? It's being proclaimed as good news, but why? Why is the coming of Jesus and his kingdom, why is it good news? You see, in the ancient Greek world... That that phrase, good news, it it brought up the idea of a different kind of kingdom altogether. It brought up the idea of the kingdom of Julius Caesar in the Roman Empire, whose ascension to power, and it was heralded, there was letters sent throughout the Roman Roman Empire that heralded the, the, the rise of Julius Caesar as good news. It was good news because it meant the end to a different kingdom and the rise of a new one, that one that was supposed to be better. One that, was, that this new king was bringing in, this new, this new guy was bringing in. And so similarly, by proclaiming that Jesus' kingdom is, is coming as good news, what Matthew is doing is he's not just telling us that it's good news, he's, telling, he's setting it at odds with a different kingdom. See, for something to be good news, there has to be bad news. And so what Matthew's doing is he's saying there's two kingdoms, and they, they fundamentally stand at odds with one another. And what, we'll, what you see if you read the Sermon on the Mount is that what Jesus is doing throughout these three chapters is he is comparing two different kingdoms. And he's contrasting these kingdoms. There's two gates and two rows and two trees and two foundations and two ways and two types of people. And, and there's a, these two kingdoms that are fundamentally at odds with each other throughout Jesus' great sermon. And, but it's not Jesus' kingdom and Caesar's kingdom that stand at odds in this great sermon. It's not Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of the world that stand at odds. That's the way I felt like I always understood this until just a few years ago. Rather, what's going on here is that there are two kingdoms who are set at odds, but one is not the way of the world and the way of God. Rather, what's going on is Jesus is presenting two kingdoms, one that looks good, one that appears good, one that appears right, and one that is. See, he's presenting two kingdoms One on the surface looks good, but one at its heart is good. One on the surface looks good, but really it's just a poison apple. The other kingdom is fresh and beautiful and delightful. You see, the kingdom that stands at odds with Jesus' kingdom throughout the Sermon on the Mount is not the kingdom of the world. It is the kingdom of religion. 
When I say religion, I'm not talking about a specific religion. What I'm talking about is a way of thinking and relating to God that bases our relationship with him on our own actions, our own attitudes, and our own behaviors being the method or the basis by which we gain God's love or gain his approval or, or keep his acceptance or approval. You see, religious thinking is one of Satan's greatest lies because it often looks really good on the outside. It looks like people who have moral lives and are successful and things are kind of going right and their families look put together. You see, but religion is a poison apple, and it's a kingdom that stands in stark contrast with the good news of Jesus' kingdom, the gospel of his kingdom. And so my hope this morning is, is to show you the differences between these two kingdoms and why the good news of Jesus' kingdom is, is really good news. And so in light of that, let's pray, and we'll dive in this morning. Jesus, as we come this morning, uh, we just come dependent on you, and we say we need you. God, I need you to fill me so that what I have to say this morning comes from you and is fruitful and life-giving and good. God, I don't have the power to make that happen on my own. God, and we need you to cause us to respond rightly to the truth about who you are and, and what you've done. And so, God, I pray by your spirit that you would cause the gospel to be heralded as good news this morning and to be received as good news this morning. And so, Jesus, for any of that to happen, we need you to do that. And so we ask humbly that you would. God, for our good, but more than anything, for your great glory. And pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, in order for us to see why Jesus' kingdom is good news, we're going to need to understand, as Tim Keller notes, I think that there's three aspects to every kingdom. Every kingdom has a, has a pattern, it has a power, and it has a product. Now, Tim Keller, he uses this outline to talk about something different. I'm just stealing it and repurposing it this morning because it's just really helpful as we think about going what we're talking about this morning. But again, every kingdom, it has three patterns, or it has, it has three aspects. It has a pattern, a power, and a product. The first, the first thing is that every kingdom has a pattern. And the pattern is the set of values that govern life in that kingdom. The pattern of the kingdom is the set of values that govern life in that kingdom. And every kingdom has its own set of values. The pattern that values life in the kingdom of King Pepin in my household is that we use Apple products exclusively because they're inherently better. We cheer for the Packers because, again, they are just inherently better, right? And we, we drink Slurpees the whole year, whenever they're available, because they are amazing. Those are the values that govern life in the Pepin kingdom. But every kingdom has their own values that govern life in their kingdom. You might be a Bears fan and just be fundamentally depressed with your life forever, right? But you have some values that govern life in your kingdom. That's just the way it is. And so the question is, what are the patterns of the two kingdoms that Jesus is contrasting in his great sermon? What are the patterns of the kingdom of religion versus the kingdom of the gospel? This morning, uh, I tried to write this down clearly. Uh, Greg, I think you should have this on a slide this morning. What I want to do is paint a picture of what's going on in these two kingdoms. You see, the kingdom of religion, the pattern, the values that govern life in the kingdom, the kingdom of religion says, if I obey, then God will love me. But the gospel says, because God loves me, I can obey. See, religion depends on what I do. But the gospel depends on what Jesus has done. Religion believes that appearing to be good is the key, but the gospel believes that being honest, being honest about what's really going on in your heart is the key. You see, religion claims that our sanctification justifies us. The gospel claims that our justification enables our sanctification. And those, those words are just fancy theological words, but sanctification, it just, our sanctification is just our growing up in Christ. It's our maturing. It's, it's how we look more and more like Jesus. It's our growth in him. And our justification, that word, it just means being made right with God or being declared to be right with God. 
And so what religion is saying is, is the claim is that by my actions, by my behavior, by my performance, I, will make, I make myself right with God, or my, I make myself acceptable to God. You see, it's not about the heart changing, it's about the appearance changing, it's about the external stuff changing. But the gospel, the claim is that God's declaration, his, his making me right with him in the, through the person and the work of Jesus, that's what both enables and empowers the change that happens in me. You see, the gospel says you can't actually change without Jesus being the one who changes you. And he's the one who calls you and makes you right with God. And then he's the one who beginning ongoingly transforms your heart and your life. You see, in religion... Religion has this deep uncertainty about our standing before God. But the gospel has a, has a deep certainty, and it's based upon Jesus' work. And this is huge. You see, you see, in religion, what happens is we fundamentally relate to God like he's a boss. And we are desperately trying to earn his approval or keep his approval. And we're trying to make sure that our performance kind of measures up to his expectations. And so that we can like get in the good graces that we're trying to get in with him. Or, or we're constantly afraid that we're not measuring up to the standards that he's set. And so we're worried about our job and we're worried about our relationship and all that kind of stuff. But the gospel fundamentally views our relationship with God not like a boss. But the gospel enables us to see our relationship with God like a loving father. You see, a father whose love for his kids isn't based on what they do. I remember when Emma was born, when we were pregnant with Emma, I, I wasn't sure like how I would relate to her. I, I'd never been a parent before. I like when we found out we were having a girl. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how do you how do you be a dad to a girl? I don't know how to do that. Like I can play with Legos, but like that's about it. You know, like I, I don't know the first thing about this. And, and I was like, where is like I don't know how I'm going to feel about her when she comes. And I just remember uh, just like the moment that she was born. I just remember instantly my heart just loved her. There wasn't like this like warm-up period. There wasn't like this time where it was like, I don't know, I'm going to get used to. I saw her and I just loved her intensely. You see, and there is nothing my daughter could ever do that would change the way that I see her. There is nothing that she could do that would change my love for her. You see, and that's how the, the gospel calls us and invites us and heralds to us the way that we should relate to God. See, the gospel tells us over and over that God is a good father who loves us not because we deserve to be loved, but because we are his kids. You see, that is fundamentally different than the kingdom of religion. You see, fundamentally, you know, as well, religion, it sees hardships it sees hardships as punishment for sin, but the gospel sees hardships as a sanctifying affliction. The gospel allows us to see difficult things in our life as things that God's actually using or able to use to, to grow us. You see, when everything is about you, it is hard, if not impossible, to see the value or good in any suffering that you might experience. But as Christians, the gospel frees us to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for, our, for God who saved us. See, I think this, one of the ways this just sticks out to me so much, in, in 2016, uh, my grandma passed away, and my grandma loved Jesus. At the end of her life, she was, she was pretty sick. And she was in a lot of pain, and it was difficult. But what happened for her is that her sickness, it didn't lead her towards bitterness, it led her towards worship. You see, because what she believed more than anything else was that God was doing something in her that was making her ready to enjoy eternity with him. That God was at work in her life, 
making her ready for something he had in store for her, but also for the good of those around her that didn't know Jesus yet. My grandma loved talking to people about Jesus, and she used all these appointments that she had and all these kinds of situations to make much of Jesus. And she wasn't characterized by bitterness. She wasn't characterized by complaining. Instead, her sickness caused her to long even more to be with Jesus, showing that what she really longed for was not the blessings of his kingdom, but was him. What she longed for more than anything was to be with the one who had loved her more than life itself. You see, and when you love Jesus and you live for his glory, not your own, all these things in life God gets to use for, his, for your good and for his glory. Apostle Paul writes, he says, I consider the trials of this life to be momentary afflictions when compared with the glory ahead. You see, that is the attitude of someone who is living in the kingdom of the gospel. Additionally, religion, the goal is to get something from God. But the gospel's goal is to get God himself. You see, religion sees Jesus as a means, but the gospel sees Jesus as the end. You see, in religion, we, we want the benefits of God's kingdom. We want his blessings. We want, we want his approval. We, we want things to go well in our lives. And so we try to obey in order to get God on our side so that we can like, have this cosmic blessing in our lives so that things can just inherently go better. You see, what we want is we want the joys of the kingdom, but we still want to be king. We don't want to surrender to the king. We, we just want the benefits of his kingdom. And if we're honest... That's just what's going on in our heart. You see, we can't separate the king from the kingdom, though. One pastor I read this week, you note this. He said, what we need more than the blessings of the kingdom is the rule of the king himself. You see, what the gospel does is it changes our hearts so that what we long for most is the joy of being with the king, not the joy of the kingdom itself. See, the gospel is about us receiving God himself as the greatest treasure and the highest joy and the source of life. The gospel invites us that we might see him as the thing to be enjoyed, see him as the one to be treasured. You see, religion is fundamentally about me, but the gospel is fundamentally about Jesus. It's about God. Lastly, I don't think this one's on the screen here, but you see, religion is always about control. And the gospel is always about surrender. You see, religion is about control, but the gospel is about surrender. You see, it's often been said that religion is the default mode of the human heart. And we all tend towards religion because it just makes sense to us. It just makes sense. We, we relate to people on a transactional kind of basis. And a lot of times we want to relate. And often we want to relate to God that way. We want to be in control. We want to, we want to be able to understand the terms of that relationship. And you see, a lot of times what happens is we want to be able to relate to God kind of like a taxpayer. Or we pay our taxes and we get certain benefits in return. It's kind of a, we'd like to view God. We, like to, we want, our default mode is to try to relate to God on, on that kind of a ground. Because what happens is there's a limit then to what God can ask of us. We pay what we're due. We pay what we owe. And there's a limit to what God can ask of us. But the gospel says that we relate to God not on the basis of paying our dues, but on the basis of unmerited grace and mercy. And so there's no limit to what God could call us to do. There's no limit to how he could ask us to respond to him. There's no limit to what he could call us to give back to him. We saw that last week as we studied the disciples' calls. They left everything to follow Jesus. And that can seem really scary it can feel really unnerving. It can, it can feel uncertain. 
In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a, there's a character, Mr. Beaver, and he's talking with Lucy, and he's describing to her this, the character of Aslan, and Aslan is a lion, and he's the, he's the king of Narnia, he's the ruler of Narnia, and so Lucy has never met him, she doesn't know anything about him, and she asks, she asks Mr. Beaver, she says, is Aslan safe? Is he safe? Mr. Beaver, he replies, Safe? Who said anything about being safe? He is a lion. He's not safe, but he is good. And he is the king. You see, God is good, and he longs to give good gifts. He does not need to be manipulated. He's not one in which we have to try to weasel our way into his graces or into his favor or into his blessings. And you see what's happened is that God has proved that he is good. He has proved it. He has shown it and he's revealed it throughout history and in his word and ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus. And he's given his life so that you and I would know who we are and know what he thinks about who we are. You see, and so there's no need for us to be afraid of God because God will never ask us to do something that he has not already done for us and will not empower us to do for him. Besides, if we really understood the gospel, there is nothing God could ask us to do that we wouldn't long to give back to him. And that brings us to the second aspect of every kingdom, the power of the kingdom. See, every kingdom has a pattern. It's the values that govern life in the kingdom. And every kingdom has a power. See, the power of a kingdom, the power is the is how the pattern of the kingdom is brought about or how it's enforced. In the kingdom of religion, the motivation, the driving force, the thing that brings about the pattern is always fear or pride. But in the kingdom of the gospel, the motivations, the driving forces that bring about those values, the thing that motivates it is an unmerited grace. You see, religion's power to bring about its kingdom is always fear and pride. You see, fear is a really powerful motivator, but it's not a motivation that can actually change us. It's always a temporary thing. It leaves us caught in this cycle of duty and obligation and then unmet expectations or pride or arrogance and always leaves us caught in guilt and shame. And so what happens is we loop back around over and over and over again. It's kind of just like this spiritual game of whack-a-mole. But the gospel is motivated by unmerited grace And those are powerful motivations because they actually have the power to change us. You see, the gospel's motivation is not that we need to be afraid of God and make sure that we are on his good side or else. You see, the gospels, the good news about the gospel, the motivations of the gospel are that you are on, you have God's favor, but you never should have got it. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. And there's nothing you could do to mess it up. And so what happens is that enables us to fail and to run to God for strength instead of running from him in fear. You see, one of the things that God has most deeply convicted me and my heart over the, of over the course of the past few years is, is like this deep-rooted selfishness in my heart. I think having kids has really brought that out in a lot of ways. I remember hearing a pastor one time saying that if you're married but you don't have kids, it's kind of just like being on a really long date. That is so true, Right? Kids, they really change everything about your life. And, and having kids, it really, it really changes the, you, you lose a huge amount of freedom and flexibility in your life. And for a while after we had Emma, I really wrestled with, uh, with just a bitterness, I felt like. Not, not at her or with her, but I just felt frustrated. I just felt like I had lost the sense of freedom and flexibility in my life. And I just wanted to be able to do whatever I wanted to do after 7 p.m. anytime. 
And for a while, for a long time, I, I would see myself getting caught up in this pattern. I would just be really convicted about that, but just discouraged. I was like, I don't know how to change this about me. I don't want to feel this way. I know this isn't right, but I don't know how to change this attitude in my heart. You see, and what happens is that the kingdom of religion, the answer to that problem in the kingdom of religion is, yes, you should feel bad about that. It is terrible that you feel bitter that you have kids. So get to work fixing that. Like, you know that's a problem, so get to work and fix it. Try hard, want it more, feel bad enough, and just get over it. But the kingdom of the gospel says that your selfishness, that my selfishness, it, it is a problem. But that condemnation is never going to change that. It's never going to fix that problem. Instead, what I needed to be reminded of is not just that my attitudes were a problem, but that Jesus loved and pursued me while I was selfish. That Jesus' great love and, and his pursuit of me happened not when I was running after him, but while I was running after myself. You see, and what happens in the kingdom of the gospel is that Jesus wants to empower me to choose to joyfully put the needs of my family before my own needs, just as he did. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, in being, very na- being in very nature, God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he became, he became a servant put the needs of others and counted others as more valuable than himself. You see, and it's only when, I'm, when, it's only when I see and experience the way that Jesus has sacrificially loved and served me that I'm ever going to have the power to actually choose to sacrificially serve my own family. You see, in Jesus, he didn't do that begrudgingly. He didn't do it unwillingly. He didn't go through the cross just with a, just with a frown on his face. Hebrews tells us he did it for the joy that was set before him. You see, the best that the kingdom of religion can offer me in that situation is just to guilt me into feeling bad enough and choosing to try to make sacrifices to serve my family. But the gospel actually fundamentally empowers me to do it with joy. It fundamentally enables my heart to see it as not something that I need to do, but something that God's inviting me to do and something that is life-giving and joy-filled. Similarly, Thing oftentimes the kingdoms of religion and the kingdoms of the gospel they butt heads, especially when we think about sexuality and we we think about sexual sin. I think a lot of times, see, religion it, it motivates us towards purity with regards to our sexuality by trying to say is that you are supposed to be pure. God God says that you're supposed to save yourself for marriage, or or that sex will just be better if you wait, or or just you don't want to let God down. So just so just. Don't let him down. Just do your best. Don't let him down. And, and when you fail, you just need to try harder, and you just need to do better, and you just need to like make it happen. You just need to really, really try and really desire it. You just need to put up more filters or more boundaries or wallow in guilt and shame or, or soak just feeling bad or something, whatever it is. But the gospel's motivations towards our sexual purity are wildly different. You see, the gospel calls us to a purity in our sexuality because Jesus was sexually pure and he, and he did it and we do it to honor him. You see, Jesus is the one, the husband who remained pure for his bride even when we were unfaithful and impure with him, before him. You see, and he's the one who empowers us to remain pure for our spouse in the waiting before marriage and in the hard times within marriage. You see, what happens is the gospel proclaims that sex can never fulfill. It can never satisfy. It can never really give life. It can never really, another person and in that intimacy, it can never give what we really long for it to give. You see, only Jesus can give those things. 
In the gospel, it tells us no matter how much we fail, Jesus is coming after us. He's longing for us. He's inviting us to something better. He says, I have what you're looking for. And I'm not here to beat you over the head with your failings or with your inobedience. I'm here to offer you a life. I'm here to offer you something better. You see, God loves us in the midst of our failings, but he's never content to let us keep heading our own direction. You see, he has something better for us. His kingdom is full of life and joy for us. You see, that's why I'm always talking about the gospel here at River City. That's why at, in every sermon, I'm always getting back to Jesus and who he did and who he was and what, I, what he did. Just a few weeks ago, we, we looked at Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, and we saw in the passage about how Jesus modeled for us what it looks like for us to fight temptation in our lives. But we didn't end there. So we didn't just end at Jesus modeling what it looks like for us to fight temptation because that's not good news. You see, religion ends at the model that we see Jesus doing. Here's how Jesus fought temptation. Now you do it just like him. Try your best, do really good. You know what you're supposed to do, just do it now. The problem is, is that you can't. The problem is that we give in to temptation all the time. You see, and just learning how Jesus overcame temptation will only serve to be the rock that Satan tries to beat you over the head with when you inevitably do not measure up and you inevitably do not win those battles. You see, but that's not where we ended. We didn't just end at Jesus shows you how to overcome temptation. You see, where we ended was that Jesus is the one who has overcome temptation for you. You see, that's the good news about the gospel. The good news is that Jesus overcame temptation for us. And so, and so where Israel failed and when we failed, Jesus did not. He was the true son who always obeyed. He was the true son who always chose obedience, who lived in light of the king. And he did it not just to show us how, but he did it for us. He did it on our behalf. He did it so that we could have the power in him to do it as well. You see, those are two different sermons. You see, one sermon where you just stop at the model of how Jesus overcomes temptation. One is that one's just presenting the kingdom of religion. It's not good news. It's just some principles that you'll inevitably fail to live up to. See, but the gospel is actually good news. It says that Jesus teaches us how to overcome temptation. But more than that, Jesus did it for us. And so when we put our faith in him, he's the one who empowers us to actually do it. And when we fail, our status and our standing with God is not changed because he's the one who obeyed for us. And it's his standing and his status that we have with God. And what that does is it fuels us in the midst of our failings to keep giving ourselves inherently back to him and to keep longing to obey and longing to pursue him, not because we're trying to get something from him, but because we are loved by him and we shouldn't be. You see, what that kind of love does is it fuels a passion for Jesus and it fuels a longing for us to obey and it fuels a, a longing to give our lives back to him. You see, in those two sermons, they produce radically different fruit. You see, one, if you, just stop, if you just stop at Jesus modeling for us what it looks like to overcome temptation, that only produces guilt and shame. It only produces duty and obligation. It only produces worry and fear. Those things are powerless to actually change us. You see, but the good news of the gospel produces a hope in us. It produces a humility in us. It, it produces a love in us for Jesus and a longing to live in obedience to him. 
a gratitude for all that he has done so that we might have the hope and the power to be able to do it at all. And so if you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you actually listen to it, you'll be thinking, is it even possible? Is it even possible to live the way Jesus is calling us to live in this sermon? Can you even do that? Like, is the way Jesus is calling us to live in his kingdom, can you even do that? And the answer is, no one's ever done it, except for Jesus. And he is the one who lives the pattern of the kingdom so that he might give us the power to live in light of the kingdom. He did it for us so that in him we might have the power to do it too. And it's only through faith in him that we have the power to live in light of king, his kingdom. That we might see the pattern of his kingdom. That we might be enabled in the power of a kingdom. And lastly, what it does is it leads to the product of his kingdom. You see, the, there's a product that every kingdom has See, every kingdom has a pattern. It's the values that govern life in the kingdom. Every kingdom has a power. It's the thing that brings about, the thing that enforces those values. And every kingdom has a product, what it produces. See, the product of the kingdom of religion, where it always ends, is either self-righteous pride or despair. Those are the only two places that the kingdom of religion can end. You see, religious people, they look down their nose at everybody else, silently judging those and, and putting their value against their comparison against others based on their performance, their obedience, and their desire to live moral lives. It comes from a desire to get leverage over other people or to fundamentally get leverage over God so that he'll bless them or he'll, get, he'll give you what you are looking to get from him. And what it always does is it leads to a self-righteous superiority and a pride when it comes to people. It leads to a, a self-righteous indignation that God owes you something when you've done what you thought you needed to do, or it will lead to despair when you unendingly realize that you do not measure up to God's standards and that you do not obey always and that you do not give him your whole self. You see, religion and the gospel both agree is that we do not measure up to God's standards, and that's where the similarities end. You see, religion says, get to work. Get to work fixing yourself. Get to work cleaning yourself up. Get to work looking good enough and being good enough and trying hard enough. Get to work. But what the gospel says is, the work has already been done. Hebrews chapter 1 begins this way. He says, after making purification for our sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of heaven. You see, Jesus sat down because the work was done. He had finished all that was necessary so that we might have a right relationship with God. You see, religion says Jesus' work is not enough. I need to add something to it. I need to bring my own behavior or my own, my own whatever. I need to add something to what Jesus has already done. But the gospel says... What could you possibly add to what Jesus has already done? His work is finished. It is good. It is enough. See, religion, it inevitably ends in pride or despair. But the gospel, it always ends in humble joy. The gospel always ends in humble joy because when you receive grace, you are able to give it away. When you compare yourself to Jesus, you see how much you need him just as much as everyone else needs him. And what it allows you to do is it allows you to relate to people fundamentally on the attitudes of grace because you, really, you realize how much Jesus has forgiven you and so you are free to forgive. You realize how much Jesus has loved you when you did not deserve to be loved and so you are free to love others when they do not deserve to be loved. You see, in the gospel, it, it ends in a joy because it's, it leads to great and abiding joy no matter the circumstances. 
You see, one pastor, he writes it this way. He says, the good news of the kingdom is that even when we don't experience the benefits of the kingdom, we still get to experience the rule of the king. You see, the gospel says that you might not always experience the joys of the kingdom, but you will always experience the joy of the king who rules and reigns. And that brings joy and peace. It brings life. It brings hope. It brings security. It brings a, a longing to obey and a longing to pursue him. And it's not marked by guilt and shame. It's marked by conviction that's full of grace. You see, Jesus, he ends his great sermon in chapter 7 with a parable about these two guys. They're both building houses in, the, in his parable at the end of his great sermon. And one is unwittingly building his house on the foundation and the pattern and the power of the kingdom of religion. And the other is building his house on the foundation and the pattern and the power of the kingdom of the gospel. And, and the storms come and the winds rage and the, and the waters blow. And one house stands and the other is completely destroyed. You see, in the purpose of this final picture that Jesus gives as he closes his great sermon is that we might reflect on his words and examine our own lives to see which kingdom we are building them on. See, it's a call, it's an invitation, but it's also a sober warning to discern which kingdom are you a citizen of? Which kingdom are you building your house in? Are you building it in the kingdom of religion or in the kingdom of the gospel? You see, early on in the construction of the Tower of Pisa, they noticed that the tower was slightly tipping. And, but they just kept building on it. They just kept going instead of fixing the problem. And without the, modern, without the wonders of modern science and modern engineering, that tower would have fallen long ago. You see, faulty foundations, they'll work for a little while. They will work for a little while, but they will always crumble and fail you. You see, and if you are a follower of Jesus, if, you, if he is your king, if he is the one who has saved you, if your hope is in him, then you have found the foundation that will last. And the question is, what foundation are you building on? You see, knowledge is different than wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is technically a fruit. Wisdom is knowing you do not put tomatoes in fruit salad. Knowledge and wisdom, they are fundamentally different things. And so knowing the right foundation doesn't guarantee that you are building on it. So you've got to apply the knowledge about what is true. You see, you can be a citizen of God's kingdom, but you can build your house on the kingdom of religion. You see, the default mode of our heart is religiosity. The default mode of our heart is self-salvation. We want to believe that we can save ourselves, that by our actions and by our attitudes and by our merits, that we can make ourselves good enough and right enough and pleasing enough for God. You see, it's the default mode of the, the human heart. And see, the battle between the kingdoms of religion and the kingdom of the gospel is happening in our hearts all the time. And we are so tempted always to go back to the worthless, sandy foundations of the kingdom of religion. And often we do that without realizing it, without knowing that we're even doing it. You see, some of us, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But we live like we're citizens of the kingdom of religion all the time. But there are some of you who are here this morning, and you're not just living in the pattern of the kingdom of religion. You are a citizen of that kingdom. You're not just living in the patterns of the kingdom of religion. You are a citizen of it. You have never put your trust wholly in the person and the work of Jesus to be the one thing that makes you right with God. 
And as I, as I talked this morning about the differences between the pattern and the power and the product of these two kingdoms, what you've realized is that over and over again, what happens, you fundamentally, you're realizing you relate to God in, through the lens of the kingdom of religion. You functionally believe that your obedience is what pleases God, that, that the way God sees you, it depends on what you do. You're uncertain about your standing before him. You, you just don't know what he thinks about you. And if you're honest, what you really want is not the rule of the king, but just the blessings of the kingdom. You realize that your motivations are often rooted in, in pride towards other people or in fear from God. And what it's producing in you, what you're realizing is that what it's producing is, you in, is either fear or pride. It's producing pride in the way that you relate to other people. You compare yourselves to others constantly thinking, I'm better than them. I'm not as good as them. I need to make sure I keep climbing this ladder. Or you are filled with despair. Because no matter how hard you try, you keep realizing you keep failing. And you keep never living up to what God's word says. And you try to obey, but you just can't do it. And you are, I just need you to hear this this morning. You see, you are here this morning because God is calling out to you and he is extending an offer to you. He is pursuing you. He is running after you. He is holding out his hand. He is offering to you an invitation to be a citizen of a new kingdom. He's inviting you no longer to live in the confines of the kingdom of religion, which produces no life and no joy. Just pride and despair, and he's calling you, he's inviting you to live in light of the kingdom of the gospel. One in which there is great joy. One in which there's great humility. You see, so that you will leave, he's calling you so that you will leave the worthless kingdom of religion and become a citizen of his kingdom. And the way that you do that, like we talked about a few weeks ago as we studied John the Baptist, right, is that we need to soberly acknowledge our sin and our need for Jesus to save us. You see, what religion does is religion says our sin is bad, but it's not too bad because we can fix it ourselves. And to enter the kingdom of the gospel, what we need to realize is that our sin is bad. But it's so bad that we could, there's nothing you and I could do to fix it. We cannot clean ourselves up enough. We cannot fix ourselves up enough. We cannot restore ourselves. We cannot impress God enough with who we are or what we bring to the table. We need one who would come and save us. You see, to enter his kingdom, you must realize and you must admit that you need saving. And furthermore, you need to reject the kingdom of religion and your reliance on anything other than Jesus to make you right with God. You see, the kingdom of religion, what it wants to do is it wants us to hold on tightly to believe that what we do can affect our relationship with God. And in those moments when things are going well, what we do is we want that to be true. But if we're honest, what happens is that there are more moments that do not. There are more moments that are going terribly badly. And if we actually tried to relate to God on that lens, we would be woefully inadequate. And so to enter Jesus' kingdom, you must reject your allegiance to any other kingdom. And lastly, you must submit to Jesus as king. You see, Jesus longs to be your Savior, but he will not be your Savior and not your Lord. You see, the kingdom of the gospel is one that is free and open to all, that we might come and receive it. But what it requires is that Jesus must be king. He must be the one who holds ultimate sway. He must be the one whose kingdom values, whose values and pattern, he, his kingdom values must be the ones by which, which govern our lives. You see, and for Jesus to be Lord means that we must say, Jesus, whatever you say, I will do. You see, I've been praying and longing this week 
that those of you who, here, who are here this morning who have been living in the pattern of the kingdom of religion or who are still citizens of it might see the good news about the gospel offered out to you. That you might see instead of duty and obligation and fear and guilt and pride, what instead is being offered out to you is life and joy marked by a humility that comes from the saving grace of Jesus, his unmerited, undeserved grace that allows us to come and relate to God like a good father who loves us no matter what and who longs for us to grow and who longs to empower the change that he wants to see happen in us. See, there's this incredible hymn by John Newton. He's the same guy who wrote Amazing Grace, and it does such a great job, I think, of summing up how the good news about the kingdom of the gospel transforms our heart and transforms our relationship with God. He writes this in the last verse. He says, Our pleasure and our duty though opposite before. Since we have seen his beauty, they are joined to part no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice, it transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see, what the gospel does is it changes our hearts, not just the external. It changes us at a heart level. And that radically transforms our lives. But not through duty and not through obligation, but through a choice that we make to lovingly respond to Jesus and all that he has done. You see, that's what we're remembering and we're celebrating when we take communion. See, what we're doing is remembering that Jesus is the one who has done all of the work. You see, the kingdom of religion says get to work, but the kingdom of the gospel says the work is finished. And that changes everything. You see, the bread and the drink as we take communion, they remind us of Jesus' body and his blood which were broken and shed for us as he lived the life that we should have lived and as he died the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sinful rebellion. And he set us free from the power of sin so that we might have power and given new powers so that we might actually live in light of his kingdom. You see, what we're doing when we take communion is we are celebrating the gospel. We're, we're remembering and reminding ourselves about who God is and who we now are because of him. What we're celebrating is the good news about his kingdom coming into our lives. And as we do, what often happens is God convicts us. He convicts us when we're citizens of his kingdom. He convicts us of the places in our lives where we are not living in line with his kingdom values. But conviction is not guilt, and it's not shame, and it's not condemnation. You see, what happens when we remember the good news of the kingdom and the good news of the king, and we see our lives as out of line with the pattern of his kingdom, when we experience the goodness of the king, what happens is our hearts long for him. What we see as fully satisfying, what we see as the thing that fills that desirous hole in our heart is something only a, the good king can give us. You see, as we take communion, we're proclaiming the gospel, reminding ourselves about who God is and, and who we now are because of him. If by faith we've put our hope in him. You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't, it doesn't save you. The only thing that can change our status and our standing with God is our putting our faith in the person and the work of Jesus. And so this morning, if you have trusted in Jesus, if he is your Savior and your Lord, then during our time of communion, go back. Take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right, and go back, and you dip your, the bread in the juice during our time of worship. You, no one's going to dismiss you. You go back as you, as you are led. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. Because what communion is doing, what we are proclaiming, is reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done so that we might be citizens of his kingdom. 
and with, with great joy and with great love, we celebrate all that he has done and who we now are in him. You see, and wherever you're at this morning, I would invite you during our time of worship and communion, ask God to show you which kingdom you are living in. Ask him to give the eyes of your heart the ability to see what's going on in your heart and how you relate to him. See, what are the patterns that form the way that you relate to God? Are they based on what you do? Are they based on what Jesus has done? What, what are the actions and attitudes and behaviors that, that are, you are motivated by? What's the thing that drives your obedience and that drives the things that you do in your life? Is it a joyful response to God's unmerited grace or is it fear and pride? Ask him to show you what the fruit of your life is. Are you just producing self-righteousness or despair? Or is the kingdom filling you with a humble joy? Ask God to give you eyes to see which kingdom you are living in, which kingdom you are a citizen of, which kingdom you are building the foundation of your life on. But more than that, ask him to show you the good news of his kingdom. Ask him to show you the good news and to empower you to believe and live in light of that kingdom. You see, the offer that Jesus extends to you is not one if you just feel bad enough if you feel guilty enough or you realize that you don't measure up enough, then, then you'll be able to enter his kingdom. No, the offer that Jesus extends is that there is nothing you could do to be able to enter his kingdom except to receive the gracious offer he extends. You see, he's the one who makes us right with God. He is the one who empowers the obedience and the life that he commands. And so there's life and there's joy and there's humility, and there is great, there is just great life in the midst of the gospel. And so God's inviting and calling us to live in light of the gospel, the good news of his kingdom this morning. Oh, that we would live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, that the pattern of his kingdom would, would be the values that govern our lives, that the power of his kingdom, his unmerited grace, would fuel the actions that we have, and that what it would produce in us is a humble joy in response to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are grateful that your kingdom is come as a proclamation of good news. That the announcement of your kingdom is, is, is different than the kingdom of religion. God, that what you proclaim is not get to work, but what you proclaim is that the work has been done. God, and I pray that what would happen this morning is that you might give us eyes to see which kingdom patterns and values and power and product are, are being manifested in our lives so that we might choose to live in light of your kingdom. God, I pray that you might adopt some this morning into your kingdom, that you would offer them citizenship in the kingdom that is marked by grace. God, and I pray that you might free all of us this morning, God, from the duty and the obligation God, from the, from the weight of the kingdom of religion, that we might joyfully live in light of the kingdom of the gospel. God, with lives that are passionately obedient to you, with lives that long to give ourselves back to you, with lives that long that every corner of our lives would be submitted unto your authority. Jesus, and we long for that. God, and we are so grateful that you come and your kingdom is not a hammer, but it is a gentle invitation. And so, God, by your spirit, would you cause us, would you call us to long for you? 
Would you help us to live in light of your kingdom? God, to be fueled by grace and mercy rather than duty and obligation. God, for our good, but more than anything, for your great glory in all the world. We pray this in your name. Amen.